Um, we're going to be uh, jumping into a whole lot of scripture today, so we will we will jump right in. Would you do me a favor and turn with me in your turn with me in your Bibles? And if you do have them, whether it's on an iPad, a device, or whatever, we also do have. Oh, we might have Bibles available somewhere. Maybe not. Normally we do, but I think we used them the other day, yesterday. There is one available. Troy is the guy. Yeah. So if you need one, they're back there. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of earned salvation. suspecting from your giggles you didn't bring that Bible with you. All right, well, maybe you just got a different translation. Turn with me in, if, if you've got the different translation, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of God Loves My Worship Music Better Than Yours. Okay, clearly that's not the one either. Um, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Zerubbabel. <laughs> now I'm just messing with you. All right, uh, some of y'all are like, yeah, that's not true. Some of you are looking for Zerubbabel. A lot of turning, it's past the A's, I promise you. No, okay, so I'm just kidding, but here, here is the deal, though. Even as I say that, and there's a lot of humor surrounding that, I think that there's a seriousness to it, because the truth is, the way that Christianity, we find it sort of forming and being lived out and being purported, so to speak, and, and the way we see Christians sometimes acting, there are probably, in a lot of ways, though I'm joking, a lot of different versions of the Bible out there, if you will. And what I don't necessarily mean is different, translate, is different translations. What I mean, perhaps, is just the way people tend to look at it, embrace it, and do that walk with Jesus. There are people who love to take the Bible and turn it into their own tool to do whatever it is they want or to say the things that they want it to say. We've seen a lot of them out there. There is the book of God loves the competent and the responsible. Ooh, right? There is the book of God is dedicated to me protecting and having my own suburban lifestyle, all my ways, things, and, and ways of doing, and my toys, right? There is, <laughs> right? Troy's like, yeah, I got about 16 guitars that would tell you to agree. No, just kidding. He's not that way at all. Uh, there is the gospel of my news channel. Ooh, the, well, the only news channel that I trust, right? There is the book of you are what you are able to get others to believe about you. There is the book of God is only in it if the numbers look right. And by looking right, I mean they are big and they are wowie zowie, right? Whether in attendance, whether in bank account, whether in how many people we did this, we served in this way or how many of this we gave out or whatever, it's all in the wowie zowie. And oh, it's also in the new if those numbers are new. It's also in the book of, and you've heard this one before, at least you've heard the song, it's literally all about me, right? It's all about me. Jesus, none of it's for you. Yeah, yeah, massacring that massacre of a song. Okay, so salty today, and for those of you that, are, that came this morning and you're saying, wow, I really just wanted to come and get an Advent sermon, maybe a little gingerbread-y, if you will. Um, we'll get there, I promise. We are here in the third week of Advent, and we really are in a series called Vintage Christmas. In the first week, we explored that question of what is it we're really waiting for when we're waiting for Jesus, right? What am I personally really waiting for in, in, our, in our sermon, Vintage Waiting? And in the second week, Pastor Doug last week unpacked real and authentic worship and the ways it plays out in our life in his sermon on vintage worship. And then today, actually, it kind of lines up with our peace candle. We will talk about and look for vintage peace, where it begins, where it ends, and who owns it. 
But the challenge is before us. <laughs> There's a challenge before us when it comes to peace, because if you and I have looked around, we know, even inside sometimes, that there isn't always peace to go around, or at least it doesn't feel like that, right? And the reason is because there is someone who has it, and there is someone who doesn't. <laughs> We've seen the bumper sticker. It articulates it well. No Jesus, no peace, right? No Jesus, no peace. And as Pastor Doug mentioned at the beginning of his sermon on worship, it's always hard to kind of sift through all of the, the, the shenanigans and junk of life and find Jesus, let alone in the Christmas season where the sifting is that much harder because it just seems it's so much more in our face every day. Where do we find Jesus? Where do we find peace? And I'd also say it's hard in, in, in churches because we can easily stumble into wrong belief or at least imbalance. Things get out of order. They are just wrong, <laughs> You'll hear me say it often that those, here's some things that are very good, but they're not the gospel, right? So it's no wonder in early, early in Christianity, first century Christianity, the church has just recently been established. Paul writes to the church in Galatia, and he says this, you foolish Galatians who has bewitched you in talking about the centrality of who Jesus is and what their real beliefs are, what balance is, what God has to say about who they are and what God has to say about who Jesus is and what he's done. You guessed it, there was an inaccuracy in their gospel. We see it actually, it's interesting, in verse one, there's sort of the, the standard Pauline, if you will. Paul would write these letters to the churches. If you're not familiar with epistles, there are letters to churches. And at the beginning of those, it was standard parlance back in that day to do some sort of issue, some sort of greeting. My name is Paul, you know, I'm Paul, the one who wrote this, blah, blah, blah. Or, hey, grace and peace to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or, hey, these are the things that I'm praying for you. And, in, and particularly in the beginning of, of his letter to the Galatians, he's actually in brethren mode. He's saying, brothers and sisters, da-da-da-da-da, who has bewitched you? He goes on to say, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. But by, by, verse, by chapter three, where he says, you foolish Galatians, he is all on fire, brethren aside. I gotta challenge you because this is not the gospel someone has bewitched you. I would contend to you today, similarly to those days, because it showed up right away. If you've ever wondered whether or not it's the same as it was back in the day, <laughs> it is. We just have bigger bombs, right? My contention is that if we're gonna find vintage peace, get back to that vintage peace that we talk about that it's solely found in embracing fully the gospel of Jesus Christ, not the gospels of lesser things. Not the gospels of lesser things. And if you've ever thought that you're, if you've ever wondered whether or not, if you've ever listened to a sermon in which the, the pastor said something about embracing peace and you're like, well, I've never really asked for peace. Actually, I bet you have. When I was a kid, we would be on our way to my grandma's in Michigan. It was about an hour drive from South Bend to Marcellus and... Um, it was, it was just snowy. I just remember driving there at night and I could see the, cor the, the cornfields, they're harvested, you know, just a light dusking of snow, the dark, the moon, the woods. And there was peace, right? For many, many years now, I have tried to re, sort of re, recapture that. And, and, and if you're, you're like me, personality and heart and emotion-wise, there's, there's a sense of loss almost in that you, can't, you can never quite get to that thing. And maybe yours doesn't necessarily look like that or feel like that exactly, but we're all longing for some sense of peace, especially in the crazy of the holidays, in the crazy 
of the holiday. So, again, my contention is that it's only found in the gospel of Jesus, not the gospel of lesser things. So first, a refresher on vintage. We know what vintage means. We're having a vintage Christmas series. We're having a, a vintage peace sermon. It's, 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 it's authentic. It's real. It's original. It's getting back to what it's all about because there are many ways in our world today the things that are of value to us either get hijacked or even redefined. We're in a world where, where volume, both in noise and also in consistency, If you say it loud enough and if you say it long enough, it becomes truth. If you say it loud enough and you say it long enough, it becomes truth. Even if at the beginning, everyone was like, hmm, really? Right? So sometimes that stuff gets hijacked. So vintage is really where we're at today. We want to get back to that. And so again, visuals, right? We did visuals last time. We talked about vintage. So let's do visuals again. So which one of these phones is vintage? Thank you. One of y'all know a Nokia 5100 when you see it. How many have played Snake way too often back in the day? Okay, thank you. The singular person alongside of me who played Snake, right? Yeah, and actually, let's go back a second. Let's go back a second. Go back to the phones real quick. There are those of you that also know there are phones that are even more vintage than that because some of you had to dial things like 999-9999, and that took a half an hour. Holy crow, young people today, you have no idea what it was like. Okay, and, and, and then do that on a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a party line. Holy crow. Okay, vintage pants. Those are, those, this is a picture of me from high school. Okay, never mind. Those are, those, are, those, are, those are heels. Never mind. No, that's not me from high school. But yeah, vintage pants. And hey, here's one. Which one's vintage? I mean, there's the Easter bunny, and then there's a horrifying excuse for an Easter bunny. I don't even, I don't even know what that is. Uh, yeah, that poor child. Vintage is getting back to the real thing, the original, the authentic. We're on a journey this month exploring vintage Christmas. We want to know what it's about, right? We ask this each year. And today we're talking vintage peace. Where it ends where vintage peace ends, where vintage peace begins, and who owns it. So today we're going to open up Matthew chapter 2. This is what we did last time I spoke a couple weeks ago. Uh, we're just going to kind of go uh, uh, some, some passages after passages here in it. And we have so much content that I can't get slides up. So please, if you have the Bible, follow along or listen to the sultry sound of my voice. All right. And my voice isn't sultry. Just focus on the word of God. Um, let's see. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your spirit. I thank you that even as we enter into your word, that you're doing a thing. That, that even, even before we open your word, Lord, I believe that you are, are, are uh, tilling and loosening and, and working the soil of our hearts. You're dropping seed. You're moving in, around, and through us, preparing us in a variety of ways for the things that you'd have to say. May we, may we put your word as central in our lives. And so we dedicate this time to you, our minds. May we worship with our minds as we enter in. In Jesus' name, only you can guide us. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. For those of you that were here last week, uh, Doug has done a good thing in that he's influenced where I locate the Magi in my home for my nativity set. Because they used to all be together five, six, five inches or millimeters from one another, and now they're in the bathroom. So that's good. 
<laughs> Just kidding, they're not, and we don't, but that's funny. Anywho, okay, so what we're gonna do is we'll go through this, each section and then I'll kind of just draw your attention to a few things. We can't get to it fully in its depth, but we'll get as far as we can. First of all, what I want you to hear is even as they ask him, the one who has been born king of the Jews, note what it does not say. It does not say born to become the king of the Jews. Born the king of the Jews. This person is the king of the Jews. There's a, there's a distinction there that I can guarantee you someone like Herod, and we'll get to him in a little bit, uh, would, would have seen right away and that would have set him off. Now, secondly, this there, there, they saw a star. There are varying theories on what it was they actually saw in the sky. A comet, uh, maybe a supernova, which would be a star exploding, and, and that can last for several months or several weeks or whatever, uh, uh, bright lights in the sky or whatever. There is no evidence, and there's no way of really knowing what it was exactly or just a specific star that did a specific thing. Regardless, it, it, the scholars mentioned some of the stuff I was reading. that They were mentioning astrology and how in the Old Testament it's obviously very hard on astrology. Uh, because at the time, um, uh, the Jews and all kinds of cultures were actually engaging in a whole, lot of, uh, a whole lot of astrology. And for the sake of just saying this right now, my basic definition, super basic definition is this, looking at stars to calculate some stuff, okay? <laughs> there is my highly scientific definition of astrology in our context. So though it was, kind, it was, it was real, the Old Testament is very, very hard on it, the Jews were still actually, a lot of those people were still practicing some versions of it, at least in finding their way and doing certain things. Um, and so it's guessed that the, in some way they engaged some level of astrology in order to figure out something that gave them the, hey, that's his star, and hey, we gotta go somewhere. Now, the natural flow of events would have been that they would have, though the star didn't go land over Jerusalem, you'll note it doesn't say that, it would, they would have naturally gone to Jerusalem, as we've established in many other messages, and I've reiterated it multiple times. Jerusalem is very what? Jewish. Thank you. Four more people than the first service got it. Sounds great. <laughs> Jerusalem is very Jewish. It's the center of culture, so it would have been a natural inclination for them to go there first and say, hey, where's the king? So, let's see. Um, and then secondly, just remember this, that <clears throat> there is an illusion, allusion, A-L-L-U-S-I-O-N, uh, to Numbers 24, when Balaam has this prophetic word, he says in 24, 17, a star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. So this is no out of nowhere thing. And you know, for those of you that know, you know, however, we're just gonna continue pointing back to prophecies that are gonna begin coming true left and right. And then Pastor Doug's point is this, and he mentioned it last week and spent a good deal of time on it. The response of the Magi, the only response is this, what? To worship, to worship when the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is born. Verse three, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Hear that again. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the, pe the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, verse six, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. And that's for straight out of Micah 5.2. So King Herod heard this. It says, King Herod heard this and he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. I used to sort of believe, and I think some people probably still do, that the way this panned out looked a lot like my nativity scene where here's this glob of magi and they likely went up to Herod and said, hey, where's the baby? And then Herod got mad, blah, blah, blah. However, they went to Jerusalem, the center of Jewish culture, and began asking a question. And they were asking a question, a specific question, right? A question that was troublesome and problematic. 
that got word around. I mean, if you are the Hebrew people and you've been waiting for a very, very, very long time for the Messiah to come, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and your King to show up, and then someone comes along and says, holy moly, we saw some stuff, we heard some things, there was a star, where's where's the one born King of the Jews? Everyone's now talking about it, right? So that buzz got to Herod. Now, interestingly enough, though, it also says the people of Jerusalem were troubled. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's because they didn't want the rule of the Messiah? No, it's because they knew what this would do to a man like Herod. I think as one of the kids was was reading earlier, actually there was an interesting stumble as they were reading. Uh, They actually pronounced it horrid first which I thought, wow, that's ironic because that's exactly, if you know Herod, that's exactly what he is. That word disturbed is also uh, is a word for, is the word terrasso, meaning uh, troubled as well as disturbed. All of his inner being is, is, is in tumult. Herod, you gotta understand, Herod was disdained. He was mistrusted by the Jews by nature of his own family lineage, lineage which con- they considered him a usurper of the throne by nature of his father. <clears throat> that's all you really need to know, but they were upset and disturbed also, not because they wanted uh, to cling to his leadership, but because they knew what would happen when he began to get ruthless in clinging to his power, and you know where it flowed. It flowed downhill, right? Fun facts about Herod, his ruthlessness and the lengths to which he would go to try and hang on to that power and to keep control of his kingdom. Over 31 years, he executed a grandfather-in-law, a mother-in-law, two brothers-in-law, an uncle, a wife, and three sons. He's the guy you wanted a family picnic. It is believed by many, and, and I would say just many, not everybody, on, that on his deathbed, he arranged that upon confirmation of his death, all of the notable Jews in leadership would be rounded up in the Hippodrome at Jericho, 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 that's Jericho, Jericho and executed. So upon, he arranged it so that on the day he died, all of the Jewish leaders that were of any note would be rounded up, put in the Hippodrome and killed to hang on to power for his own lineage, right? And I'm sure just to say, hey, there you go. Now, and as much as it's easy to poo-poo a man like this because clearly he's, he's evil, you and I have a whole lot in common in the underneath when it comes to our desire, our ruthless desire. I mean, we're not rounding up Jewish leaders and murdering them in hippodromes. First of all, I don't know where to look for a hippodrome. But we are... We are insatiable at times, and I will only at least talk about myself and my desire to keep control of my little kingdoms inside. There are spaces in my heart, my life, and, 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 and my affections, my directions and decisions where I got little Herods running around all over the place, and they're willing to do all kinds of mental and emotional gymnastics to stake out my claim about where my power is, and there's nobody that's going to tell me different, Right? Timothy Keller, who's a Reformed theologian, pastor, and author, he actually talks a lot about this in his book, Hidden Christmas, and in that, he quotes an um, an atheist um, in making his point particularly surrounding, and it's he's Reformed, so he's going to talk depravity of man, right? But in, 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 in making his point about the depravity of man and quoting Romans 1 and Romans 3, he quotes uh, Thomas Nagel, who is an atheist, and Nagel says something that's really interesting. The first section, this paragraph, I'm going to read to you, but he's essentially saying, I'm not afraid of religion because of all the shenanigans of religion, okay? 
But hear what he has to say. In speaking of the fear of religion, I don't mean to refer to the entirely reasonable hostility towards certain established religions and religious institutions in virtue of their objectionable moral doctrines, their social policies, and political influence. Nor am I referring to the association of many religious beliefs with superstition and the acceptance of evident empirical falsehoods. So he's saying it doesn't have to do, my fear of them doesn't have anything to do with their politics. It doesn't anything have anything to do with their theology. It doesn't have anything to do with what I believe is their superstition or how they've been proven wrong by me or others. This is what his fear is. I am talking about something much deeper, namely the fear of religion itself. I speak from experience. This is Thomas Nagel talking, an atheist. I speak from experience being strongly subject to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. Get that. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Essentially, ain't no one gonna be the boss of me, right? Ain't no one gonna be the boss of me. And you and I know people like that. And they wield it in relationships so the control is always there, whether it's overt or whether it's underneath, they will make sure that happens. They will keep you in their box or you will keep yourself in a box because, again, we each have our own Herods. It's inherent and it wants to run around. We, our Herods want to run around and sort of do their thing. And I wouldn't go as far, quite as far as Keller in many ways, but I would say this. We got the Herods skirmishing inside of us all over the place trying to set stakes and claims on who and whose we are. And what our little Herods would say is that we are nobodies but our own. Get this in Romans 8. <clears throat> in Romans 8, verse 3, it says, it says that Jim lost his place. Oh, or I'm sorry, verse 5. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what the nature desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Going back... Um, no, going forward, the mind controlled by the sinful nature is death. But the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. And talking about spirit, he's talking about the Holy Spirit of God. Most of us who, who sort of internally royal, if you're like me, and if you know what royal means, essentially what roiling, picture a body of water and the sediment has, has, has landed and it's in the bottom, the water still flows, but there's been enough time to where the bottom of the river or whatever it is, the stuff is just sitting there. Roiling means essentially that there's enough of a current, there's enough of a swell, there's enough tumult within it to stir up the sediment and bring it into the mix so that you can't even see in the water anymore. Some of us are like that. Some of us live that way. Some of us live with sort of a slow burn, Low impact, but it's still there, gut ache, royal, uh, roiling of discomfort that something's not right. What, what is it? But you can usually trace that edge. You can usually trace that edge to some sort of Herod that is somewhere within our spirit, in our heart, in our life, trying to stake out claim on one place in my mind or in my heart. And I'm not just talking about behavior. There are Herods in your life and mine that are only bent on the way you view yourself. Did you know that? There are Herods that are bent on you not seeing yourself as an identified and ransomed child of God. There are Herods that only want you to live in that failure that no one knows about. And they want you to believe that that is your identity. 
There are also Herods that want you to believe that if you just achieve enough, that next thing will then blank. And you'll notice that they never actually fill in the blank. And see, and this is where peace ends. Peace ends when the Herods are running rampant in our lives and in our hearts and our minds, trying to stake claim. That's where peace ends. Verse seven, when Her- then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. Hang on to that. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Now note, note that line. He said, uh, the verse one, in verse seven, he says, he called the Magi secretly, hold on, hang on to that, and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. Can anyone tell me why they think he was so concerned about when the star appeared? He wanted to find out how old the child was because he was gonna what? He was gonna kill it. So even now, before anything has happened, the death of these children is, the death of that child particularly, but anybody that's gonna get in his way is already in his head. This was a predetermined calculation. Murdering boys, even at this point, was already likely, as scholars have commented. So secretly, um, and, and let's go into secretly for just a moment, this smells of me of shenanigans, right? It smells to me of guilt whenever it has to do with secrets. And you know this already, but here's what, here, here's what I want you to know. The Bible talks about it also. Proverbs 28.1, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. The wicked flee. They're in hiding even when there's nothing going on, Right? So when there's, when, when there's hiding going on, there's probably shenanigans, right? And I'll just also say this too, because you'll, you'll notice that he said that he secretly met them and then he said, hey, when you figure out where he is at and what he's doing, you come and tell me. Don't go tell my guy, don't tell my secretary, don't tell my, my assistant, don't send me a text, come directly to me and let me know. There, there's, a, there's a word here because when, what we gotta recognize is, is that authenticity is, 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 is polar opposite to manipulation, right? Now, I will say this. Authenticity has been rebranded and sometimes hijacked in the world today, meaning I get to say what I want and feel the way I feel at any given moment, any given time. That is not authenticity, right? The authenticity that is genuine and that is real and, and that is essentially true with a capital T is in polar opposition to manipulation, which is really not of God, essentially, And when manipulation is taking place in your life or in mine and you are purporting it or I am, when we are wielding that kind of thing, trying to get others to do what we want them to do by nature, the way we say what we say so that it looks palatable, though there is something underneath it, a different intent, that is called manipulation and we are allowing Herods, little Herods, (laughs) to run around in our life. That's what happens. So, Verse nine, after they heard the king, they went on their way and the star, again, Herod is just such a great guy, right? After they heard the king, they went on their way, which you've got to ask yourself how that went. You know, you get behind, you know, the Magi are all there. They say, thank you so much. It's been great. The door closed. You're like, what was that? (laughs) Whew. They went on their way, the star they had seen when it rose ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Now the star is actively being followed. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. And again, Doug unpacked, Pastor Doug unpacked this last week. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Little drummer boy in tow. <laughs> Hammering away. Uh, no. <clears throat> 
So this is what I want you to know, as again, I mentioned it already, they had gone to Jerusalem because it's Jerusalem, right? Uh, It wasn't as if they saw a star that moved to Jerusalem and stopped there so that they'd stop there on their way. Um, And then um, secondly, just just a reminder that last week, the call in, in vintage worship is the only response when it's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I know that we, we, you know, we, we've got a lot of ways of sort of um, uh, making easy Jesus. And that's great and it's good and it's real. But the truth of the matter is, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. That is Jesus Christ, the son of the living God we're talking about. And so, yeah, when, when you're faced there, you, you bow down and worship, right? Verse 12, having been warned in a dream, we're still with the Magi, not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Uh, When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, take the child and his mother, escape to Egypt, stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Now, a couple notes. First of all, you've noticed there's two dreams, one to Joseph, one to the Magi. And then secondly, um, go to Egypt, escape to Egypt. There's a whole lot here. We're only going to be able to say a little bit. 75 miles to the border is the first thing I think, because when God tells me to do things, the first thing I think of is all the obstacles. (laughs) Because that's my personality type. Hey, Jim, I want you to blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, here's all the reasons that's a bad idea, God. Here's all the reasons I don't want to do that. Or, oh, boy, I don't know if I got the energy. Or, oh, boy, I don't know if I'm getting it, blah, 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 blah. 75 miles to the border, and they didn't have a Volvo, you know? Like, there was, there was no nothing. And I just want to paint for you the intrigue. Like, I... I this is the, the savior of the universe who, who didn't come through swinging a mace with heavy armor on like Sauron trying to just nail all his enemies and knocking them hundreds of feet flying and just, you know, casting spells and doing kind of crazy things to just defeat and give the final, yeah, you didn't think I was God, but hey, here I am. If you think about, if, if, I, if I was God with all of my tiny, 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 tiny ego and you added up millennia of people doubting me, I can guarantee you I'd come back swinging, Right? But this is not the way God did what he did. He came in the form of the most, most helpless form possible where his parents are wiping his butt. Like, he is, he is so, it's, it's so antithetical to what you and I know. And, and, the, and the king is after him. The king is gonna murder him. And everybody in his wake. There is so much intrigue and God is speaking into it. I'm gonna protect him. That's why those dreams are there. So they head out to Egypt. It's Roman rule. It's out of Herod's jurisdiction and essentially at the time they think there was about a million Jews there. Now, here's what I want. For, for those of you that are kind of into the Old Testament, not kind of into the Old Testament. That's a horrible way of putting that. For those of you that are interested and really like engaging more, there is a huge Old Testament parallel here for Genesis. Genesis 46, Jacob and his family were fleeing the famine in Canaan, Right? which eventually did set the stage for what? The Exodus, right? There is an enormous connection here to the run, the fleeing from, to, right? There's a whole lot going on there. Also with the Magi, there was no angel. With the Joseph, there was an angel. Um, Yeah, and that's that's really all we have to hang on to there, but just 75 miles, and I I gotta be honest, um, holy cow, I would be tired. (laughs) 14, he got up. Now, this is the one I want you to hang on to. Verse 14, Joseph, so he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, and hang on to that line too, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I call my son. That's a throwback from Hosea 11. 
You know, I've long, I've long reveled at Joseph. I feel like Joseph, you know, he just doesn't get a whole lot of the story because he never really actually says anything. Um, and maybe it's because I aspire to be like Joseph because I talk way too much. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but what I like about him is that in every instance, he just gets up and does it, which I, 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 I long to be that guy. And I'm, I'm saying this in all honesty. I, I, I long to be that, that straight. And when I say simple, I don't mean it in a, in a not smart way. I mean it in the way that says, I will push aside all of my fears and I will go where you tell me to go. With Mary, he said, Mary or, I, yeah, Mary or she's young, she's already pregnant. Hey, it wasn't you, it wasn't anybody, just marry her, please. Okay. With Jesus, he says, take her and take them and go. Okay. Oh, yeah, by the way, name him Jesus. Okay. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took Mary home as his wife, and he gave him the name Jesus. That was the early in the Christmas story. And then in revolving, involving Herod, he just up, he got up. And there was no questioning. I mean, if you think about it, if, if, I'm, a, if I'm a first century Jew, I know all of, I know at least a lot of the history, right? It's been crammed into my mouth and into my head for a whole long time. And I know all of the stories of how God came through for our people. And here he is, the savior of our people, the savior of my people. And God brings him in the form of a baby. And and I want to say, God, wait, aren't you the God that split the Red Sea? (laughs) Didn't you bring like a dancing jubilee of plagues across Egypt like to save your people, right? Like, if this child is who he says he, you, who you, if this child is who you say he is, what are we doing this seems small, it seems hidden, which seems like the last thing that I would ever want, right? And, and, and Joseph also didn't do this. He didn't bargain. He didn't reframe. He didn't change the narrative. He didn't say, oh, well, let's find some other way of doing this, God, or maybe if we just try to go this way a little bit. There was no delaying, denying, resisting, which I am beautiful at doing. And he didn't shake his fist. He didn't get angry. It didn't talk about him being all tired or overwhelmed or what if, what if, what if, which is all me. There wasn't even resistance in being tired, like, right? Like, if how many of you, if somebody came to you, particularly in the night, and said, hey, we really get up, it's time to go do a thing right this moment, right now, you'd be all in right there, right? If someone, some of you are hardened criminals and probably could do that, just kidding. We have a thing, like, in the last couple of years, I don't know what's been going on in me, I think it's called age, I've heard this thing called age, but, and I don't know if that's the thing, but I've, I fall asleep like that. And I can be doing that in the living room, sitting at the couch, just hanging out and fall asleep. It doesn't care if it's an action movie. It doesn't care if it's lame is. I don't care. My kids have figured this out, my two that are home now. And so now they'll ask me stupid questions to get me to try and talk while I'm asleep. <laughs> and then they will report to me what I said the next morning. So evidently, recently... They, okay, so we have, a, we have a, one of the things we do in our house is we, we, we really shower each other with, you know, love. I love you, you're awesome, you're amazing, blah, blah, blah. We say that sometimes. And, and they'll say that to us or whatever, and, and, blah, and that's probably totally unhealthy. I mean, we'll call them out on their junk, but we also say you're, you're, you're a treasure, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, whatever, oversharing. Um, and at one point, evidently, while I was unconscious, and I had just fallen unconscious, so I'm barely there, right? I had obviously eaten corn chips, and um, one of them says, you're amazing, and I said, I evidently said, you know, I'm just a dude on a bike. <laughs> what? what? 
Like, I don't even know what that's about or where that came from. I don't know why they were talking to me, but now that's the new thing is that you can ask dad anything, especially when he's falling asleep. But, but that's the thing. If, if, if anything had come, there would have been layers and layers and layers of Herods in me resisting this call to go and do, right? Layers of them. But instead, Joseph got up. And this is where peace begins. This is where peace begins. Verse 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Hundreds of years ago, when the prophet Jeremiah spoke the words of God, he was speaking into the death of children that were not yet born for the sake of our Savior, through Rachel, essentially the matriarch of Israel. So what was fulfilled through the prophet, through the prophet right? And there's multiple times throughout this that we just start seeing over and over. We've been, God's basically been saying, this has been being said, this has been being said, this has been being said, and now this is all coming to fruition. That massacre of the innocents is something that sometimes people question, but I'll tell you, I mean, I know some people question it. Some people think Matthew actually made it up, but I'll tell you this, I believe, I believe it. <clears throat> Because first of all, it's in line with the prophecy from Jeremiah 31. It's also very much in line with what we know about Herod's last days as he was falling apart mentally and physically. He was getting worse and worse and worse and more manic and crazy. And then secondly, or and then lastly, it also is in line with the way he was questioning the age, the, the, the timing of the star, therefore the age of the child. So I believe it was there and happened. Oh, and by the way, too, um, you know, I just don't think there's an I just don't think there's an accident. When Rachel was buried in the Old Testament, ugh, if you haven't looked, it's a beautiful story. It's sad, but when Rachel was buried in the Old Testament, she was buried outside of uh, outside of Bethlehem. Oh my gosh, all the irony in the world, like right. Verse 19, <clears throat> after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph and, 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 and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So it's been a while, right? And here's another dream then. And guess what Joseph did? He didn't argue. He didn't say finally. He what? He got up took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father, Herod, this is his kid, he was afraid to go. It was the only remaining son, right? Um, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. So he got up. He got up. And again, that is the beginning. That is where peace begins. Peace ends when we allow, allow our little Herods to do their thing and to guard that sacred space that we, whatever it is we call sacred, whether no one's going to tell me what to do or no one's going to tell me who to believe that I am or no one's going to tell me the things that I should maybe stand for or, or how this might work a little bit better in my life or this might bring a little bit more peace. No one's going to tell me any of those things because there is a way that seems right to a man, a person, and in the end it leads to death. That's where peace ends, right, when we let our little Herods run around. But peace begins when we get to the place where we can, like Joseph, and I'm on, my, I, I'm on the road towards that. I might have taken a step. I feel like I'm on Pluto because of all the resisting, all the Herods that want to run around. He just got up. 
Because I'll tell you this, when it comes to my family, if someone gets close to wounding my family and they are at risk and now someone gives me an idea on what that should look like, my response, everything in me says, no, 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 I got this. How many of you are there? No, 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 I got this. The other day, our daughter had some oral surgery. It was not that big a deal. It was not that big a deal. But for those of you that know, she had a heart thing back in the day and, and, and several heart surgeries and, and, and all of that. <clears throat> but I'll tell you this, it was so crazy that the moment that they, they lay her there, she is a 15-year-old teenager. She's just having some tooth work done. They put a gas mask on her and instantly I'm back in the same place where I have no control. I hate that place. Like that is in me hating the place of no control, especially when it's to my kids. And so when God said, Joseph, get up, I got you. That's the beginning of peace. I promise you sometimes it's everything in you is gonna wanna run. All your little Herods, they're gonna run around and try to fight and they're gonna argue, they're gonna wrestle, they're gonna push back against, they're gonna question, they're gonna be afraid. But the beginning of peace is when we get up. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7 says to us that it's Jesus who owns peace. Jesus owns peace, not me, not my route, not the ways I think I can do it. We heard the kids say it, it was beautiful. Now it's not as beautiful because I'm saying it. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. That, my friends, is the real gospel. So my question for you today is, what about you? Where do you find your peace? Is it in the false gospels? <laughs> is it in the gospels that we try to wield and that our many Herods want to do? Or is it in the one who really owns peace? Because all we got to do is get up. Worship team, would you come forward?